Well, welcome to the Black Madonna Speaks with me, your host, Stephanie Georgiev. Thank you so much for spending your valuable time with me. And before we get started, I want to give a special shout out to my wonderful Patreon supporters. Your multi-leveled support means the world to me, and this podcast would not be possible without you. Thanks also to all who subscribe, like, and share. And for those who reach out to me, I really enjoy hearing from individuals who follow The Black Madonna Speaks. You are all quite extraordinary human beings who make our current times interesting, creative, and help us all with your many gifts. A brief announcement regarding the In Search of Sacred Origins, the Golden Art of Africa trip with Sophia Services under the leadership of Sarnia Guiton. I've been back for a few days from this extraordinary experience. Thank you so much for your support and prayers. I have been enriched beyond belief during this entire process of researching and delivering on various topics regarding the sacred origins of Africa. As you may know by now, my Patreon supporters and those who have made a one-time donation of $100, they've already received the recordings, copies of the PowerPoint presentations, handouts, and transcripts for the talks, which happened in Johannesburg and the rest of this extraordinary journey. I have decided to extend the offer for those interested in receiving all of the materials who have yet to reach out to me in order to get this. So with a one-time donation of $100 to my PayPal account listed in the program notes, you can get the entire package of everything that I said earlier in this sentence And this offer will be available until September 30th, 2023. So you only have a few days left to take advantage of this. As my Patreon supporters know, much of the research I have shared regarding the recent trip to Namibia is the background for a future book in the Black Madonna Speaks series. The working title is The Black Madonna, Wisdom from the South. Something which has always inspired me in my many travels and speaking engagements is how profoundly the Black Madonna touches people, especially people with heritages from places other than Europe. While, of course, we know that divinity has no skin color, but to have divinity presented in ways that mimic various groups of people shows that divinity is in us all, regardless of what we look like on the outside. When my father was a small boy entering school in a suburb of the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he spoke no English. His parents were from the Balkans and had emigrated to the USA in the early part of the 20th century. My grandfather came to the U.S. in 1914 at the bidding of his mother, who did not want him to fight for the Austro-Hungarian Empire during World War I. And my grandmother came to the States in 1921 with a wave of Slavic immigrants while the gates to the United States were open after the war. This door slammed shut in 1924 because the American public was alarmed at all those Slavic people from the Balkans and Russia flooding the job market in inner cities. 
It's a wonder how many Americans throughout the decades always feel that immigrants are messing up the country, that their specific immigrant group is just fine, not future ones. When my father entered school as a child, this was seen as a great honor for his family with their peasant roots. As he dressed differently and did not speak English, he was bullied and beat up by the American children. Those who stood up for my dad and stopped the beatings and harassment were the African-American children who knew all too well what it was like to be singled out because one was different. Because of this, my father grew up welcomed in the black community, and I had many uncles and aunties I spent vacation and holidays with and attended various events such as weddings, funerals, and so on within this community. It was rather jarring to me personally when I became aware as a preteen of racism in the world. It is also rather jarring to me personally now all the events that are happening, specifically in my home nation, whose ideals I cherish so deeply. I've always seen the Black Madonna as a counter current to various social and religious trends. Not exactly a rebel, but definitely an alternative to certain rigid and exclusionary and even anti-divinity movements throughout the ages. It's been somewhat of a grail quest of mine to figure out what the heck happened. Why did something so amazing and loving, particularly with Christianity and how humans interact, how did this get all messed up? I went on somewhat of a quest as a young teen in reaction to what I was being taught in Missouri Synod Lutheran catechism classes. I went to these schools. My family was United Methodist and Eastern Orthodox, so this was not the tradition that I was raised in. It was the tradition that I went to school in. These lessons of which we were tested and graded on were that in essence, women were not supposed to proclaim the gospel to adult men or women. I was also deeply confused when I was taught that no group other than this particular sect were true Christians and that the Catholics were wrong and all the rest of us weren't worthy to receive communion and it was anybody's guess if we would actually go to heaven. It just did not make sense to me how a loving God, the God of parables and of the lost sheep, the God of the prodigal sons, of Jesus first appearing to Mary Magdalene after his resurrection and telling her to tell others, that anyone was excluded from this healing, loving message of Christ because of gender or church membership. This initial confusion and rejection of what I was being told was my first foray into libraries, theology, talking with clergy, and so on. For me, I went through my angry feminist phase in my early teens, and through research and reasoning, realized what I was being taught was wrong, and that while everyone has a right to their beliefs, Beliefs are not necessarily truth, 
nor do other people's belief determine my own self-worth or how I should approach divinity. I've been on an interesting quest for many years now, trying to comprehend how racism became acceptable, how something as arbitrary as melanin content in skin would determine one's worth as a human being, and even if one could be considered a human being if one had more melanin than others. How did this resonate with the fact that Christ sacrificed for all, not just a specific group of people who looked a certain way? This is where my training as a physician comes in quite handy. In any medical training, the one thing constantly drummed into you during health science education is that an accurate history on a patient is the key to determining the problem at hand and how to solve it. The primary goal of a physician is to alleviate suffering. I approach human culture in the same way. One has to get an accurate history in order to figure out what is wrong. When did things go wrong? Because if you know how the problem started, then you can accurately fix the problem. This is why I'm so preoccupied with history. Not that I think I personally can fix the world's problems, but understanding etiologies is a step in the direction of inspiring the collective. It is also why the current practices in various states in the United States, which are banning books and curriculum, are so dangerous. Until the history is understood, we cannot heal and be whole. One of the most intriguing aspects of my research into the history of how misogyny and racism came about, specifically within the context of the Black Madonna, is how three continents where Christianity first had its influence were intimately entwined. The three continents are Asia, Africa, and Europe. I came upon an interesting book at a used book sale at my beloved library in St. Helena in California, and this sent me on an interesting course. I found two books, actually. The Lost History of Christianity, The Thousand-Year Golden Age of the Church in the Middle East, Africa, and Asia, and How It Died. This book is by Philip Jenkins. Philip Jenkins is a professor of history at Baylor University in the United States and co-director for Baylor's program on historical studies of religion in the Institute for Studies of Religion. He's also an Edwin Earl Sparks Professor of Humanities Emeritus at Pennsylvania State University. The latter is my dad's alma mater, so of course I have a soft spot for anyone associated with Penn State. This book is simply a must read, mainly because it gives a sweeping and academic look at the Christian movement in its first thousand years. This first thousand years of Christianity is the era of Black Madonnas, particularly in Europe. I must admit, I was almost completely ignorant of this history. Even with my exposure to Orthodox Christianity, I was unaware of the extent 
the early church had influence throughout Africa and Asia. For instance, the oldest churches on earth are in Africa and China. I did not know that. I assumed the first regions to be exposed to Christianity were the regions around Palestine, and then the influence spread west to the Balkans and then Europe. The other book, and personally I think I keep my angel on her toes as she guides me to these book sales and such. In any case, the other book is The Sign and the Seal, The Quest for the Lost Ark of the Covenant by Graham Hancock. In this book, I learned about the complex history of Ethiopia, Judaism, and the development of Christianity. Hancock is an investigative journalist who used to head up the Africa Bureau for the Financial Times. He's a devout agnostic and in his book approaches the subject of the lost Ark of the Covenant with the cynicism of a journalist and is almost exhaustive in terms of his research. It's a really interesting read, especially when his discoveries are connected with things such as esoteric Christianity and such. And again, I'm the one that makes those connections, not necessarily him, but it is interesting when you read his research and what he's discovering, and then you look at that through the lens of esoteric Christianity and the cosmology of anthroposophy. For me, what was so interesting about these books is that they meticulously described a counter to the mainstream notion that Christianity and the church were something that Europeans forced upon Africa and Asia through missionaries and colonialism. In actuality, nothing could be further from the truth. Yes, of course, in the age of exploration, when Europe began to colonize Africa, India, Arab territories, and the Americas, Christianity, specifically Roman Catholicism, was part of the deal. But other than the Americas, Christianity was not new to these regions. In fact, Islam was responsible for the centuries-long subversion of organized Christianity, sometimes by force and other times simply by attrition and isolation. Sharia law states that people of the book, meaning Jews and Christians, are allowed to practice their faith in Muslim territories. Albeit with certain restrictions, say the temples or churches could not be bigger than the mosques and there needed to be a payment of special taxes. Jews and Christians could do whatever they wanted if they went along with these rules. In fact, in many cases, Christians actually preferred Muslim governments as they could believe and practice as they wished without either the Vatican or Constantinople telling them what they could or could not do or believe. The local sultans had no desire to convert anyone, mainly because Christians and Jews were sources of income. Something I always found interesting when I was serving in the Peace Corps in Albania was the attitude of Muslims there, extremely tolerant of all religions. The history of Islam in Albania was when large numbers of Christians converted mainly because they did not want to pay the religious tax. They became Muslim not out of coercion, oppression, or some sort of mystical revelation, 
It was more of a bookkeeping budgeting issue. It was only in the 12th centuries when things got a bit dicey in terms of religious toleration within the Islamic world. A combination of the Crusades and fighting over trade routes and markets created a chauvinism of sorts where what type of Muslim one was, a Shiite or Sunni, and whether or not one was a Muslim at all, became the basis for bloody conflict and coercion. We are obviously still there, and my hope is that things will shift towards mutual respect and kindness at some point, but one must wonder, however, if humanity will ever tire of violence and think there might be other methods of solving conflicts. But that's a subject beyond this podcast. Now, all of this is a big preamble for the topic of this episode of The Black Madonna Speaks, and it's on the mysteries of Ethiopia and the Black Madonna. You do not need me to tell you how mysterious the Black Madonna is in terms of where she came from and why she's so prolific in Europe. I have understood her in terms of what I consider her symbolism and what her symbolism represents. There are so many ways to interpret the symbolism and meaning of the Black Madonna in terms of messages from the spiritual world. For me, a major message is the universalism of divinity, that all peoples are divine, regardless of their heritage, gender, and external appearances. That these Madonnas were brought to Europe is very meaningful to me in terms of symbolism. For me, the the Black Madonnas hearken to ancient times, to a deep wisdom of humanity. In fact, many Black Madonnas present as holy wisdom, Sophia seated upon her throne. Rudolf Steiner has commented frequently on how the cosmos of wisdom is being transformed into a cosmos of love and how we humans were created to be a catalyst in this process. The symbolism of holy wisdom seated upon her throne holding the holy child, the ultimate symbol of divine love, for me has great meaning in terms of messaging from divinity a message from the spiritual world towards humanity. In a recent podcast, I was exploring the connections between ancient Africa and the Black Madonna, a phenomenon I am thoroughly enjoying, particularly in the medieval studies community, is a focus extending beyond Western Europe in terms of research. There are many reasons for this trend. One is the proliferation of African studies, The other is scholarship and academia is coming of age in newly independent African nations. These academics from emerging nations are starting to tell their own stories. There are world-class museums such as the Getty in California and the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York featuring scholars, exhibitions, and such on the history, art, and influence of Africa on global culture. And I can tell you, as I guess I'm a late baby bloomer, an early gen 
Gen X person. Um, this was not the case, I would say, until maybe 15 years ago. I was unaware of it in any case. Now, a very interesting thread is looking at the history of Ethiopia. Again, I refer you to the sign and the seal for a truly exhaustive study of the history of Ethiopia in relation to its religious evolution. One of my favorite podcasts, the Medieval Podcast, hosted by Danielle Sobolski, had a wonderful interview with Dr. Verena Krebs, professor of medieval studies at Ruhr University in Bochum, Germany. She holds a binational PhD from the University of Constance, Germany, and Michaela, Ethiopia. I follow Dr. Krebs at on what I'm going to call Twitter, and I really enjoy her posts, mainly because she attends all these really cool uh, conferences all over the world, and I certainly will not be able to do that, so I get sort of a bird's eye view of these really interesting conferences that she attends. Now, her research focus is on the medieval Solomonic Kingdom of Ethiopia and its influence on the Mediterranean world. Now, thanks to my Patreon supporters, I was able to purchase her book, Medieval Ethiopian Kingship, Craft and Diplomacy with Latin Europe. I assure you, this is not casual reading, but it fills many gaps in terms of understanding the unique relationship between Ethiopia and Europe in the Middle Ages. The brief version of this book is there is a long history between Israel and Ethiopia. Ethiopia claims to have a direct lineage of its royalty with King Solomon, as well as being the location of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark, for those of you whose Bible history is a bit rusty, is an item which Moses had built on the instructions of God during the 40 years wandering in the desert by the children of Israel. This item was a gold-lined box which contained the original Ten Commandment tablets, a tray of manna, the food given to the Israelites during their sojourn, and the rod of Aaron, which helped to part the Red Sea, among other miracles. The Ark has been sought by different groups for many centuries, mainly because it is thought that anyone who possessed the Ark would have quite a bit of power. In my opinion, and again, it is simply my opinion, I think that the Knights Templar were searching for the Ark when they were excavating under the Temple Mount in their early years. In the latter years of the 12th century, Ethiopia underwent a civil war, and the king at the time, Lalibela, was exiled out of the country and sought refuge in Jerusalem. At the time, the Patriarch of Jerusalem also had authority over Ethiopia. Lalibela remained in Jerusalem until his forces prevailed in the civil war, and he returned with an entourage, which again, in my opinion, included Templar Knights. Lalibela spent at least 20 years in Jerusalem, and it is exceptionally likely 
that the Templars encountered him. The Templars were an extraordinarily curious bunch of men, true scholars who sought knowledge from all sources. In fact, their knowledge sharing with Muslim caused great consternation within European power structures. But it is such collaborations and learnings about sacred geometry, architecture, and astronomy that influenced Templars and their building projects across Europe, many of which we still enjoy today in the great cathedrals on the continent. At the heart of the Ethiopian civil war was the legitimacy of Lalibela and his dynasty. When he returned to Ethiopia, he became a patron of the arts and architecture, resulting in the magnificent rock-hewn churches near Oskam. Oxum. He also had holy scriptures translated into Getz, the language of Ethiopia, and the writing of the Kebra Nagast, the Ethiopian book, which outlines the relationship between King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. Scholars, including Krebs, feel that this legend is similar to the Arthurian tales in that the promotion of such legends legitimized the monarchy. In Arthur's case, it was to legitimize the Tudor dynasty, and in the case of the Kebernagast, it was to legitimize Lalibela's dynasty. Christianity in Ethiopia dates back to the ancient kingdom of Aksum, when the king Ezana first adopted the faith in the 4th century AD. This makes one of the first regions in the world to officially adopt Christianity. In the 4th century, Ethiopia was Christianized by two brothers from Tyre, Saint, and I'm sure I'm not going to say this properly, Frumentius and St. Odysseus, who adopted the Byzantine style of Christianity, a.k.a. Eastern Orthodoxy. Towards the end of the 5th century, uh, monks from Syria brought monasticism to Ethiopia. Now remember, monks from Syria were of the Dionysian, the Aripagite orientation, and these were scholarly monks that were responsible for the dissemination of various doctrines, such as divine darkness, the angelic hierarchies, and such. They were also adept in languages and encouraged the translation of scriptures into Getz. Various Christian denominations are now followed in the country. Of these, the largest and oldest is the Ethiopian Orthodox Tawahedo Church, which is an Oriental Orthodox Church centered in Ethiopia. The Orthodox Tawahedo Church was part of the Coptic Orthodox Church until 1959, when it was granted its own patriarch by Coptic Orthodox Pope of Alexandria and Patriarch of All Africa, Kirill VI. In the later medieval period, there were numerous delegations visiting Europe uh, from Ethiopia, and particularly France, 
and these were done by Ethiopian diplomats looking to shore up connections since Jerusalem and much of Asia Minor in North Africa was by that time under Muslim control. Ethiopia was the only region of northern Africa to survive the expansion of Islam as a Christian state. A very interesting phenomenon happened during these times, which means the times of the Middle Ages. It involves a priest king in a distant land, a letter, and an endless search influencing the age of discovery and the Renaissance. The priest king is called Prester John, which according to the Grail tradition is the son of Firefiz, the brother of Parsifal. Firefiz is the child of their father Gamaret's first marriage to the Moorish queen Belacane, and, e and equals his brother in knightly ability. Because his father was white and his mother black, Firefiz's skin consists of black and white patches. His appearance is compared to that of a magpie or a parchment with writing on it, though he is considered very handsome. Prester John legend began in the early 12th century with reports of visits of an archbishop of India to Constantinople and of a patriarch of India to Rome at the time of Pope Calixtus II. The apostle Thomas, the doubting one, he is credited with evangelizing Asia, and particularly India. The visits of the Archbishop and Patriarch of India were from the St. Thomas Christians of India. Well, they cannot be confirmed because the events are recorded in secondhand reports. What is certain is that the German chronicler Otto Frisling reported in his Chronicon of 1145 that the previous year he had met Hugh, Bishop of Jabala in Syria, at the court of Pope Eugene III in Viterbo. Hugh was an emissary of Prince Raymond of Antioch, sent to seek Western aid against the siege of Edessa. His counsel inspired Eugene to call for a second crusade. Hugh told Otto in the presence of the Pope that Prester John, a Nestorian Christian who served the dual position of priest and king, had regained the city of Ekbatana. Ectabana was an ancient city, which was the first capital of Medea in western Iran. It was an important city in the Persian, Seleucid, and Parthian empires. Prester John also helped the besieged Christians in a great battle, quote, not many years before, unquote. Afterwards, Prester John allegedly set out for Jerusalem to res rescue the Holy Land, but the swollen waters of the Tigris compelled him to return to his own country. His fabulous wealth was demonstrated by his emerald scepter and his holiness by his descent from the three magi. Now, I know that conflicts with 
him being a descendant of Firefizz. So as my wonderful listeners, you can choose which legend you prefer. Now, what is interesting concerning this legend is a letter written in 1165. In 1165, copies of what was likely a forged letter of Prester John started spreading throughout Europe. The letter was a wonder tale with parallels suggesting that the author knew about the romance of Alexander and the Acts of Thomas, which is a non-canonical scripture popular with Gnostics and Asian Christians. The letter from Prester John was supposedly written to the Byzantine Emperor Manuel I Comenus, who was battling Islamic forces at the time. The letter told of many marvels of richness and magic in Prester John's kingdom, and it absolutely captured the imagination of the Europeans. So popular was this letter, it was translated into numerous languages, including Hebrew. In a medieval transcript version of Game of Telephone, Prester John's letter circulated in an ever more embellished form for centuries in manuscripts and examples of which still exist. So his kingdom became bigger and more amazing with each translation. The invention of printing perpetuated the letter's popularity in printed form, and it is still current in popular culture during the period of European exploration. In fact, Henry the Navigator actually was looking for Prester John. Now, wondering if this person was still alive after several hundred years, but you know, it's the Middle Ages. Part of the letter's essence, the letter of Prester John, was that a lost kingdom of Nestorian Christians still existed in the vastness of Central Asia. In an act that would frustrate modern communication experts, Pope Alexander III sent a response letter to Prester John via his physician Philip on September 27th 1177. Why it took 12 years to respond is a mystery by any account. The voyage of Philip is also the stuff of legends, and nothing more is recorded of him. Now again, for you striking writers, this would be an amazing miniseries to have ready when the strike ends. But we can be sure that Philip did not return with word from Prester John. During the time of the Crusades, the returning soldiers and clergy brought back legends regarding the Grail, Prester John, and the Kingdom of the Grail. In this kingdom, there was justice and humility, no poverty or suffering, and Prester John was the humble servant of Christ. His kingdom was seen as the model of Christian ideals, that of a kingdom, a community of universal brother and sisterhood. In medieval times, the European concept of different continents was a bit fuzzy from how we currently think of geography. Asia and Africa were sometimes superimposed, meaning someplace we now identify as Africa was in fact Asia and vice versa. 
Images of Prester John often picture him with a turban and of dark skin. And some chroniclers thought that he was African. And those who gave his heritage to Firefies, the biracial brother of Parsifal, felt that he was predominantly African in his heritage. And now to Ethiopia. Ethiopia is a special place in Africa. It has been a meeting point of ancient peoples and spiritual teachings for thousands of years. Hebrew, Phoenician, Indian, Arabian, Egyptian, indigenous African, Christian, and Islamic influences have contributed to the unique culture and spiritual practices of Ethiopians. Numerous philosophers believe that it is in Ethiopia that a new spiritual impulse for the future may have had its birth. In fact, specifically amongst current anthroposophists, they feel that Ethiopia is a model, and obviously not the war that is raging there right now, but that Ethiopia is a model and that the seeds have been laid for the grail impulse for the healing of humanity. We know that the founding of the Templar order, Bernard of Clairvaux, was devoted to the Black Madonna. He received his childhood conversion at the foot of a Black Madonna altar in France. I have always felt that it was Bernard's influence on the Templars that inspired them to bring Black Madonnas to the European continent and place them along the Camino de Compostela. The Templars had high Christian ideals of universal brotherhood, which I recognize as community, a beloved community of equals. I believe that the Templars were seeking holy wisdom, the divine Sophia, in addition to a pure experience of Christ. We know that they wished to help create a civilization in Europe that could contain the Christ. We know they were ardent students of the stars, of etheric geography, and of the relationship between the heavens and the earth. We know they intended to model community through the arts and equality. We know the Templars felt that kings and popes were a result of the fall of man and strived to inspire humanity to become their own popes and their own kings, to inspire a high morality of service, equality through community and the arts. It is my opinion, mainly because of the markings left on the rock-hewn churches of Lalibela, that the Templars went to Ethiopia with King Lalibela in search of wisdom, of the Ark. I also personally feel that it is from Ethiopia that many Black Madonnas were brought to the European continent in the treasures of the Templars. I feel so many things have influenced why these enigmatic images grace the European continent, mainly as reminders of the wisdom and tradition of ancient cultures from the cradle of Christian communities, both in Asia as well as Africa. So I hope I have inspired many questions in your personal quest for wholeness with the Black Madonna as your guide. 
please know what I present are my insights and whatever insights you may have regarding the Black Madonna, it is valuable and worthy of your own personal quest for meaning. This is Stephanie Georgia saying once again, thank you to all my Patreon supporters, as well as my one-time donors. Those of you who subscribe, like, and share, and to those of you who reach out to me with questions. If you would like the materials from my Africa speaking tour, there's a link in the program notes on how to receive them. Until next time, blessings on your journey.